Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the February episode of The Delicious Podcast with me, Jilly Smith. This month, we meet American author Laura Shapiro, whose book, What She Ate, looks at six women in history through the food on their tables. And we look at that damning report on Parmesan from Compassion and World Farming with the man who found the story. We've got our usual tales from the producer. We've got a slice of life with delicious columnist Kay Plunkett-Hogg and more recipes from the delicious test kitchen. But first, delicious magazine editor Karen Barnes on what makes the sunshine in the February issue. When we were planning it, we all talked about what we long to see. And I think after leaden skies, you just long for a ray of sunshine. So we're trying to capture this on every page in terms of the warmth of food and exciting recipes and great stories. All the usual Mm. package, but even sparklier. Lovely. Um, Tell me about some of the big features you've got in there. One of the features that I think is particularly interesting is, is about Instagram and how or whether, that's the question we're posing, whether it's changed the way we eat, um, whether it's changed the way restaurants put together their menus and think about how their food's going to look. And I know Nigella said a while back, um, stew is never going to look good on Instagram because it's brown. But actually my view is that um, putting together a magazine, every single recipe we have in the magazine is photographed. Mm. So we do put together recipes unashamedly with a view to them looking fantastic on the page because we have to entice people to cook those recipes but they also have to deliver on flavour. And if you ask chefs whether they are influenced, a lot of them will say no they're not but actually you know the truth is if a dish looks great on Instagram it will pull in the crowds especially Mm -hmm. if you've got somebody who is an Instagram influencer as they call them putting a picture of your dish up on Instagram it has to have an an effect. Absolutely and of course you get so much information about normal people's lives through the food they eat which is what we talk to Laura Shapiro about later. Yes and I think the the issue is you eat with your eyes and uh, that is what entices you either to eat something or to cook something and though it is a, an important consideration and I think it's brought a, alive in a broader sense the food conversation which can only be a good thing mm, absolutely um, supper clubs yes now there is a restaurant in South East London called Sparrow which isn't actually far from where I live and it was such a joy to me when it opened because it's slightly a desert of food around the area in Lewisham where it is and it's set up by a couple who started with a supper club and they decided that they wanted to put their restaurant dream into 
reality and it's such a lovely story because I think there are so many people who think oh maybe I'd like to open a wine bar or open a restaurant and it's actually a very difficult thing to do and this is bringing that alive and showing that with a lot of hard graft and some expertise behind the scenes um, you actually can make it happen and I, I think what's interesting is that Terry Blake who is uh, part of the partnership along with Yohini, his wife, is that um, he is a trained chef and has worked in some of London's top restaurants. So he has brought that expertise to bear and together they've made the dream a reality and we've got incredible recipes to go alongside. Tell me what you eat and I shall tell you what you are. So said the original foodie, the philosopher gourmand, Brias Savarin. And it's the mantra of Laura Shapiro, whose book What She Ate tells the story of six remarkable women through the food on their tables. It seems to me that if you want to know about a person, if you want to get into parts of the person that she herself may not even recognize, you look at the food, you ask people what they're eating, or in my case, you go back into the written record, the the documentation, and you find out what they were eating and and cooking, of course. And this, what they weren't eating. And what they weren't eating, because this is a book about women's relationships with food, and a food relationship can be what you eat, what you don't eat, what you dream of eating, what you resist eating, what, what you, you feed hate, others. And what you feed others. I start with Dorothy Wordsworth, the sister of the poet. Then I have Rosa Lewis, who was an Edwardian-era caterer. I have uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady. Eva Braun, the mistress and later the wife of Hitler, Helen Gurley Brown, who was uh, the the author of Sex and the Single Girl, and Barbara Pym, the wonderful British novelist. So three out of six of those remarkable women are British. Now, Rosa Lewis, for example, now our listeners may remember The Duchess of Duke Street, fantastic TV series based on the life of, of Rosa Lewis, said to be. She told a story about Britain at a certain time in the Edwardian days. Yes, the Rosa Lewis story is fascinating because Rosa Lewis, born in a, in a Cockney area of London in 1867, went out to work at the age of 12. She was a scullery maid. Somehow, nobody quite knows how, somehow she learned to do the very high-end Escoffier-style French cooking that was important at the time. She learned this very consciously in order to bring herself up the class ladder. So it's a real story of food and class. She was hanging out with the dukes and duchesses and the lords and ladies and the Prince of Wales. It's about class and it's about how fragile class identity can be in the face of something like war. Absolutely, and food is a wonderful passport to social mobility, um, particularly at that time. Um, Eva Brown, of course. Hitler's mistress, who wouldn't eat, and I found that very interesting. Her relationship to food was about what she looked like. Absolutely. She was focused on appearances above all. She used to uh, change her clothes seven times a day. It's not that she had a social life. Quite the contrary. They kept her rather out of sight. Hitler was not supposed to be going around with a mistress half his age. So she didn't have a public life. But in in private, that is to say, in, in Hitler's entourage among the Nazis, at the dinner table in particular, there she could kind of come into her own. She could play the role, and it was entirely a superficial role. It was a role of appearances. She could 
she could believe that she was the lady of the house, the consort of what she called the greatest man in the world, and she could do it at the dinner table. That was the that was that was like her forum where she was free to to sort of believe in this fantasy she had constructed. And it's like looking through the window into Hitler's life, isn't it? And seeing what he was eating. Of course, he was a very well-known vegetarian. Um, and But their whole relationship around dining and their social life. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt um, didn't eat again. She, uh, she professed not to care about food. And interestingly, her friends and relatives and all the people who wrote books about her the idea is, is always given out that she did not care about food. What we find out, what I found out when I went into the letters and, and her memoirs and things in more detail is that after FDR died, Eleanor Roosevelt, she left the White House and went on to this fabulous other second career. She's a great public figure in the United Created States. Created the United Nations. Uh, yes, she was wonderful. Once she was free of that role and that marriage, she found her appetite. What I found really interesting was that you clearly found a, a rich vein in diaries. I wonder how you would write a similar book about Instagram. Exactly. That is a fascinating question. I think of somebody a hundred years from now looking back mm. at our time and thinking, okay, I want to say what these people ate. Looking at Instagram, I mean, it's going to be, what, an eight-layer ice cream cone that somebody took a picture of? Or it's going to be, you know, oh, I just came home and whipped this up, and it's, you know, a paella that they made outside and had grown every vegetable and, and rolled all the sausages themselves. I mean, what on earth kind of a record is that going to be? So, And they won't have uh, letters and diaries, because who keeps those anymore? So uh, these historians in the future, my word to you is be careful. Look for anything written that you can find. Don't trust the pictures. Now, we love getting feedback on anything to do with Delicious magazine, and the postbox has been heaving with response to the monthly rants of columnist Kate Plunkett-Hogg. I caught up with her to find out more about one of her most passionate rants, Offal, and asked her how she got that soapbox as a food writer in the first place. Well, the delicious column came about after my book, uh, Adventures of a Terribly Greedy Girl, which was sort of out of my, not out of my comfort zone, but something slightly different for me, which was sort of a, a memoir and essays from my life with a few recipes in there. And I didn't get into food until really late. I was in my 40s before I started uh, anything to do with food. I was a model agent for most of my adult life. Um, and worked in films. But I always was surrounded by incredible cooks. Uh, my mother was a brilliant cook. My grandmother, a good, simple home cook. Uh, I'll cook you an incredible. She could cook every cuisine imagined. So I was always eating, chubby and eating and eating and eating, and then cooking and cooking. But I never thought, I'd never dreamed about doing it as a living. I just honestly fell into it, sort of incidents and accidents, quite frankly. I'd stopped being a model agent, and... Um, a very famous model called me one day and said she didn't want to do her job and it was 10 grand and I just thought I just actually can't do this anymore and then I thought I'm, I'm actually out of work and my husband's right and not a great situation so a fashion photographer friend said would you cook for my 50th because he liked my he'd been around for dinner so I cooked and then he said well would you cater a shoot uh, we're shooting in a house with a full kitchen and that started a business where I started catering for high end fashion shoots but only if they had a house with a kitchen and I'd do breakfast, lunch and dinner all cooked on site etc so that 
started the ball rolling. Then I was sitting at dinner and someone's agent was there and they said, well, can you write? And I said, well, okay, quite, quite good, yes. I'll do you a sample. And then within a year, I'd, done, I'd been the commission, uh, commissioned to do Cook Yourself Thin Quick and Easy, which is the second Cook Yourself Thin. And then from there, I went to collaborate with Bryn Williams and Stanley Tucci and a few others, and then started writing my own books. Delicious editor Karen Barnes spotted a columnist in Kay and gave her a call. So within that book, there was ten things I'd ban if I were Prime Minister, including anyone who stood in a doorway with a telephone, a mobile phone, or stops on the pavement in front of you, or adults on scooters. All these things would have severe punishment if I was ruling the country. So she thought it might be good fun to put a column in, which was not necessarily food-led, but sort of very much about the things I want to talk about, the things that really annoy me, and the things that I think are great. So sort of thumbs up, thumbs down. And she's given me a totally wide remit, so I basically can write about pretty much anything I want. And so it's great fun. It really allows me to kind of vent my spleen. I don't want to rant all the time, but I'm a... I'm a I'm well, you do, actually. I do. Because you just told me and add another yes. idea. Yes. another <laughs> idea. I do. And I just, also it's things that I want to champion. I mean, I, my husband gave me the first ever cookbook I got was by Marguerite Patton. It was a Hamlin in all colour cookbook, 1975. I was 11. And looking through it, one of the things I really noticed is the fact there were 22 awful recipes in it. Mm. Now, you would not get a mainstream cookbook today mm. with even two. You might get a chicken liver pate, which my friends in America, they always go, I don't eat liver, but I love pate. And it's the same thing. Hello. <laughs> so I think I wanted to explore when we became so squeamish. I remember I grew up with a lot of offal in the house. Uh, and I love it. And I don't understand why in, in, suddenly into the 80s it just disappeared. And now we've got the Fergus Hendersons, etc. doing it, but I don't know how many people do it at home. They might go out and have it, but they don't, certainly go, go to the butchers and I'll have three hearts to braise. Well, exactly. I mean, I also grew up on brains on toast mm. and tripe and tongue. I grew up in Thailand where they eat everything. Well, so, of you know, you did, yes. yes. And they still do. They still do, and in, from insects upwards, because it's all protein. There's no squeamishness about, about using every part of the animal, every source of protein you can. But you do see insects on, on London menus. Yeah. Not, not much, but it, we do hear the a Mexican lot of people talking. We hear a lot of people talking about new sources of protein, yeah. but you don't really see tripe. No. And I, I must say, I have tried tripe in many, many uh, ways, and I don't really like it. I don't the like only it time I've had it was at St John, and he managed to deep fry it yeah. and made it crispy and served it with a sort of Diavolo sauce, which Roy described it. I just don't particularly like the t- texture, mm-hmm. but my father loved it. Tried mm-hmm. onions, absolutely loved yeah, it, cooked in milk. Absolutely. I remember as a kid, every Christmas we had a big party in Bangkok, and our cook would just... just all the stops out and there'd always be two curled up tongues in the fridge and I loved feeling the taste buds on them and I'd help her peel the skin off yeah ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Gary Yeomans is one of the goat farmers supplying the phenomenally successful goat's cheese that's flying off the shelves at Marks and Spencers. I went to Abergavenny to meet him, his goats, and Sally Newham of Abergavenny Fine Foods. Well, I, I've been supplying Abergavenny uh, Creamery since uh, 2002, so we've been doing it for 15 years. Prior to that, we milked cows, but um, obviously there's uh, problems with the cow market. It was uh, low milk prices and it was uh, increasing herd sizes. The trend with dairy farms is to go bigger and bigger, um, and we've got relatively small farms. So we were looking at doing something that we could make a living on a smaller farm and uh, found out that they were looking for goat's milk. So we got 100 goats in 2002 and have gradually built the herd up from then. Mm. So we grow uh, most of the crops on the farm for them and uh, they're fed a GM-free diet and we milk them twice a day and because we're so close to the creamery, the milk's delivered in and processed the same day and it uh, can be on the supermarket shelves within a, a week or so. And we've got a variety of breeds, mainly the white Sarnen goats, but we've also got some Toggenbergs and some Anglo-Nubians and we've just um, been doing some work with artificial insemination using some French Alpine goats oh as well. Oh my goodness, why? Um, to make sure we keep the fat and protein up and get new bloodlines in. There aren't that many goats in the UK, so... Um, we're always trying to improve the milk quality, and you can do that through feeding and through um, better breeding of the goats. Right, let's go and taste some, some cheese, shall we? Mm-hmm. This is very much in the raw state. What we do is then blend a tiny bit of salt with it, which obviously just brings out all the all of the flavours. So what we'll find in Marks and Spencers is, is Marks and Spencers goat yes, cheese. Absolutely, yeah, that's it. Right, so I've got a little piece on the it's a very smooth consistency. It's almost creamy. Yes. But we know that it's good for us. It's very good for you, yeah. Um, it's uh, It's got less, I think it's less fat and the, the, the lactose breaks down easier within the diet and things like that as well. The fat content is uh, is slightly lower than cow's milk, but it's the makeup of the fat. The fat globules in goat's milk are much smaller than in cow's milk, so they make it easier to digest. So for people that are sick or got digestive problems, and also I get quite a lot of people even with sick hedgehogs and puppies and things like that and foals because goat's milk is much easier to digest for small mammals than cow's milk. So that's not what we would call goatee. Gary, do you want to explain what goatee means? We used to use the milk out of the bulk tank and if it's fresh out of the tank, um, it doesn't taste at all goatee. And people say, oh, I don't like goat's milk, but you put in the tea and they can't tell the difference. Mm. But... If it gets sort of three or four days old and maybe warms up a little bit, you get that goatiness coming through. And what we're talking about when we say goatee is the smell of the goat. It it it, it tastes like goat smell somehow. Yeah, um, the some of the stinky French goat's cheese. It it almost smells like the the Billy Goat's what's it. <laughs> Now, the Compassion in World Farming report on Parmesan that came out in November last year rocked the food industry when it revealed that some of our favourite Italian cheeses are produced from cows who never see the light of day. I spoke to Philip Limbury, CEO of Compassion in World Farming, who commissioned the report to find out how he chanced upon that story. I spent a wonderful weekend, or what should have been a wonderful weekend, uh, travelling through the, the Po Valley in Italy. Uh, now the Po Valley is the agricultural heartland of Italy. Uh, it is also a wonderful place for a wildlife enthusiast like me, particularly if you get to the Po Delta, because you've got amazing uh, birds and, and other creatures. 
What I didn't expect was to spend three days travelling through this agricultural area of Italy only to find that in all of the fields I passed I didn't see a single farm animal. Not one. Not one. It was a land without animals. Even when I was in uh, the region that was producing uh, some iconic cheeses, could I find any cows in the lush green fields all around me? No. Where were they all? Inside barns looking out at the grass that they could have had Mm. if only they were let out. He asked his Italian team to find out more. Well, our investigators found much the kind of conditions that I found, uh, which was cows kept permanently indoors on uh, uncomfortable concrete floors, um, often uh, you know, skinny because they're being pushed to the limit to produce uh, the milk, and uh, you're showing sores and things of this nature. So conditions that you wouldn't equate with a luxury product. So what we've done is we've actually launched a campaign to expose this to the general public, but more than that, to actually take it to uh, super consumers like uh, supermarkets that buy a lot of this product. Do they know that the parmesan they might be selling uh, comes from cows kept permanently indoors? Mm. If not, why not? And what are they going to do about it? Mm. It's almost as if a generation of Italian farmers have lost sight that we can actually keep animals outdoors. So what I'm suggesting is we work with farmers, large and small, to regain that site Mm. and to enhance their products by keeping their animals as they should be. Mm. And Britain can be a a rather interesting role model. For, For a country that lost its own way with food for so many years, the fact that there are so many small producers who are producing fabulous products now, and many of the chefs I spoke to, incidentally, said they don't use Italian cheese at all anymore, not because of the animal welfare issues you're talking about, because they prefer to go to a local producer and support the British cheese industry because of the high welfare, but also because of the care and the artisanal standards. Exactly. From what I've seen, uh, the Italian industry needs a good kick up the backside. It needs to realise that if it's going to meet the aspirations of consumers today and in the future, then they're going to have to do better by their farm animals. They're going to have to keep them in higher welfare conditions, which for cows means during the the grass-growing season, the spring and summer, those cows need to be outdoors. We we do need to, to take action where we see, frankly, animal cruelty. It's not good enough. It's not good enough whether this be small farmers or very large farmers, factory farmers. Action needs to be taken. My view is that uh, we should be asking our supermarkets, where's this cheese come from? Uh, and quiz them about it. Say, you know, is this coming from cows that are kept permanently indoors? Uh, and to be honest, if you're looking for a higher welfare cheese product, then I would be looking for uh, cheeses that are marked with something like the Soil Association organic logo. That is a certification uh, that, you're as good as guarantees, that the animals will have you know, the best animal welfare. I spoke to a number of supermarkets about the report and Waitrose gave me this statement. 
Farm animal welfare is a priority for Waitrose, and with our suppliers, we have made huge inroads into improving welfare in our authentic continental supply chains. We welcome any further improvements in this area and encourage suppliers to engage with compassion in world farming as they work to drive forward welfare standards. The co-op said, We are committed to very high animal welfare standards across our supply chain and can confirm that the milk used in the production of co-op UK products does not come from farms identified in the recent report by Compassion World Farming. Through our suppliers, we have contacted the consortium who regulate Parmigiano-Reggiano production to ensure our standards are maintained. And I'll be finding out what that means next week when we look at how to trust where we're buying our cheese. And so to the test kitchen, our monthly visit behind the scenes to the delicious magazine food team. I found Livy just about to take babka buns out of the oven and send them off to a shoot for the March issue. So today um, I'm prepping our chocolate and cardamom babka buns that are going into our March collector's edition. Um, and we are just, I'm getting the dough ready and it's rising at the moment and then I'm going to roll it out and shape it and twist them up into buns that look beautiful and taste amazing as well. Well of course, and, and the shoot is actually going on at the moment, isn't it? Yes, I'm actually prepping them um, and they'll go off and be couriered over to the shoot where they'll be shot this afternoon. So taking something like this, you, you start with chocolate and cardamom, do you? Or do you start with the vodka bun? How, do, how does it work for you? On this occasion, when we were looking for the brunch recipes, we, st- we thought about what do we really want to eat? Like, well, sometimes you want something sweet, sometimes you want something savoury. If you've got lots of people to feed, sometimes it's nice to just get something out that's been baked and it's just easy to send out to everybody. Um, and we thought about doing, because we've done a whole babka loaf before, and these are the ones that we're doing now, babka buns. So they're sort of a take on cardamom buns or cinnamon rolls or something like that, nice sharing things. Um, so we've changed the recipe slightly, we've put a different spice and we're using cardamom this time, whereas we're using cinnamon before. Um, and we're just shaping them differently and they'll have got another glaze on them and a few little different things that are different to this recipe and hopefully they'll come out really nice. And of course, d- delicious readers and delicious podcast listeners know absolutely to go to deliciousmagazine.co.uk for their recipes as well as read the magazine. But actually, behind the scenes, you're all fully trained cooks, aren't you? Did you all go to Leith's? I think we did, to be honest, yeah. I think we've all, we've all done our time at least and trained professionally and I think everybody knew that they wanted to go into magazines because it's such a small world but it's just such a brilliant job and we get to test our recipes and write the recipes and go on shoots and everything and it's really important to have, because we do so much cooking and so much testing, it's really important to have that professional qualification behind us so that we go, oh, this hasn't worked, why hasn't it worked, how can we problem solve and coming up with new ideas and what will work together and things like that. So it comes in useful every day, definitely. Thanks for listening to the Delicious Podcast. Next week, I'll be finding out how the Italian food industry in Britain is responding to that Parmesan story from Compassion and World Farming and where we can find good food that we can really trust. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast through iTunes or your podcast app. See you next week.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 